I break the sales function down into four key things. R-I-S-E, build a relationship, investigate the problems, sell your company and solve the problems, and then bring the call to a conclusion. Ask for the freaking order, right? You got to keep it super, super simple. You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today, you'll hear from a public speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and HVAC selling sales pro, Weldon Long. At 39 years old, Weldon found himself out of prison and determined to create a new life for himself. It was then, as he put it, the HVAC industry chose him. This incredible conversation is chock full of Weldon's top sales techniques and strategies, as well as a lot of information on mental health and creating a prosperity mindset. To hear more from Weldon and to watch a video of this interview, go to servicetitan.com slash podcast. Enjoy. Weldon Long, welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. How are you doing today? I am doing great, Jackie. I'm very excited to be here and uh, very excited to be a part of the Service Titan family. Thank you. We are very excited to have you be a part of our family. Uh, so any, for anyone who is listening who may not know who you are, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'll kind of start with my contracting career. In 2004, I opened uh, a contracting company, an HVAC company. I grew that to $20 million in revenue in five years. Uh, in fact, in 2009, that company was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of America's fastest growing companies. So I learned a lot about the industry very quickly. I got into it not knowing much about it. I was a salesman for another company for about eight months. Then I saw the opportunity. And then in 2009, as I said, the company was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of the, the fastest growing companies, privately held companies. And that's, that same year, I wrote my first book, a little book right here above my head there called The Upside of Fear. And uh, that book came out, really ch- changed the course of my professional life. The book is a story about my life and the lessons I learned and different things. And I started getting calls for speaking and and that type of thing and training. But the reason that my life story is the subject matter of that book is not because the business success. It's because just 18 months before I opened my HVAC company, I was living in a homeless shelter. I was 39 years old. I was broken, homeless, had no car, had no home, obviously, no family, no nothing. And the reason I was at homeless shelter is because I had just been released from serving 13 years in state and federal prison. From 1987 until 2003, that roughly 16-year span, I spent 13 years walking prison yards. I was a ninth grade high school dropout. I was a punk and a thug and a first-class loser. But while I was in prison the third time, I, I went originally when I was 23 years old for about four years. I got out. I went back on some gun charges. I got out again. At 32 years old, I went back to prison for the third time. And on that trip, I had kind of a moment of clarity, which I'm sure you'll want to know more about, and was kind of the turning point in my life, made some changes. Seven years later, I walked out of the joint to that homeless shelter. Within five years, had built an Inc. 5000 company, was writing books and training folks on how to repeat that same you know, success path. Yeah, it's an incredible story. And I do really want to get into how you came into the trades after getting out of prison for that third time. But you you laid out my next question perfectly. I want to know about that aha moment that that happened that third time you were in prison. Talk to me about that. 
Yeah, for me, it was a very particular day. It was June 10th of 1996. I was 32 years old. I was just starting a seven-year federal prison sentence. And uh, on June 10th, I learned that my father had suddenly passed away at just 59 years old. And when I received the news that my father had passed away, like the first thing that went through my brain was that dad went to his grave with me in the joint again. And I just realized for the first time, like kind of like the blinders came off and there were no more rationalizations and justifications. And I just realized what a total loser I was. And I started thinking a lot about my father and my relationship with my dad and how I had disappointed him. And I started thinking about a conversation I had with him a couple of weeks before he passed away. It was a Sunday afternoon. I'll never forget it. And uh, I called him and he took my collect call like he always did. My dad was always trying to support me in any way he could. And we're having this conversation. I'm belly aching about being back in prison and, you know, this and that and the other and, and complaining about my life and blaming everybody else, of course. And at one point in the conversation, my dad says, you know, son, your life could be worse. <laughs> I'm like, dad, how the hell could my life be any worse? I'm a ninth grade high school dropout. I'm a three-time loser. I've never had an education or a trade or a skill, never had a home of my own as an adult. In fact, the only thing I managed to accomplish in my pathetic life was that on one of my trips out on parole, I had fathered a son. So I had a three-year-old son that I had abandoned and uh, was seven years left to go in prison. And just a total broke convict loser. And I said, dad, how could my life be any worse? And my dad says to me, he says, you know, son, you're still breathing. And as long as you're breathing, you've got a shot to change your life, but you got to do it. Now, when he said those words initially, I didn't really get the significance of them, right? So I just kind of said, thanks, dad, but more was like a thanks for nothing, dad, kind of a punk attitude. And uh, exchanged our I love you. I hung up the phone and I never talked to my father again. That was the last thing he ever said to me. Two weeks later, uh, he was gone. And so as I began to deal with the, the, the grief, uh, the reality of my life, the seven years left to go in prison, the six years I'd already done, a son that I had abandoned, I just, you know, I hit my knees physically, not just metaphorically, and just like, what am I going to do with my life? How can I deal with this pain? And I decided within a few hours of my father dying, I was going to change the course of my life. And I made two very simple commitments. I was going to be a man my father could have been proud of, and I was going to be the father that that little boy deserved. And with that decision, I set out on a journey. I began, uh, my master plan was to study and find out what really successful people do and start doing that instead of the crazy stuff I'd been doing. And uh, I spent the next seven years working on that and began to learn the impact of my habitual thoughts and how those thoughts were transmitting themselves into my life and my actions. And, and I started changing my thoughts. I remember one of the first things I read was a quote from Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said, we attract that which we fear. And I said, well, that's, that's just nonsense. Why would I attract the things in my life that I fear, right? So I decided just to try it, though. I had started writing down everything I feared the most. And everything I feared the most was living and dying in prison, never knowing my son, being a loser, being homeless my whole life. And I realized, wow, everything I fear is happening, right? All the chaos in here is getting out. So I decided I was going to change what I think about. And I now refer to it as I started thinking about what I think about before I think about it, right? And when I understood the impact of my thoughts, and that's what this book right here over my left shoulder is, The Power of Consistency. It's about how the mindset uh, creates our, our life for better or for worse. And uh, anyway, I just started working in this process. I wrote out what a perfect life for me would look like. I put toothpaste in the back of this sheet of paper that I'd written on, stuck it to the wall of my cell, and spent the next seven years meditating on it and visualizing it and acting consistently with it. And seven years later, I walked out with a whole different mindset and uh, my life was just like never the same from that point on. And so it really is really about the mindset. So much of my teaching, my speaking, my writing 
is about the mindset to overcome challenges, to thrive in the face of adversity. It's such an important part of business and really life in general. That's an incredible story. And I'm, I'm so sorry to hear about your father, first of all. Um, and, but what an incredible last experience to have with him. And it was the ultimate gift, you know, uh, it was the ultimate gift that my father gave me and he didn't give me a lot of gifts. My dad and I had a very dysfunctional relationship. We loved each other, but that was a pretty powerful gift. He gave me some really powerful words of wisdom when I needed them most. Yeah. And I could definitely see how that relationship with you and your father has trickled down to you and your son. I mean, I know you mentioned it in the upside of fear that, you know, your son was really the primary focus as to why you decided to change your life around. And I know you talk about why in your previous books as well. So I definitely want to get to that. But I also want to talk about um, that incredible process. You essentially did a giant amount of mental health work within the remainder of your prison sentence. Uh, I can only imagine what that was like in a cell surrounded by a lot of fear, anxiety, danger. So how did you do that mental, that mental healing that was required for you to get to where you are today while you were in that environment? What kind of support did you have? What kind of resources did you look to? You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I didn't have a lot of what, what we might normally consider resources and support system. My mother uh, remained very supportive and would encourage me and help me in any way she could. But really my support, my plan, everything came from books. And the very first book I picked up on this journey was the same day my father died. I walked uh, four or five hours after he died. I'm like, okay, I got to I gotta figure something out. I, I walked down to the end of the cell house to this little mop closet we had and there was a box of books in there, cardboard box full of books. And I'm rifling through there trying to find something to read. And I stumble across a copy of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People written by Stephen Covey many years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And I took that book back to my cell and I began to read it. And one of the things that Dr. Covey talks about in the introduction of that book is that you have the ability to live out of your imagination rather than your past. And it's like, whoa. You know, that was really good news for me because my past was poverty and prison and violence and drugs and all this crazy violence and all this stuff. And, you know, I always just kind of thought that's who I am. That's what it is. And I was 32 years old already at that point, you know, that the die was kind of cast. And I realized, wow, I can start living out of my imagination. And that's what I started doing, visualizing all these amazing things and, and just relying on the books. One of the things that Dr. Covey also talks about in that book is what he called the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe. And there's something very powerful, and we could get into the neurology of it because the neuroscience blows me away, knowing now I didn't know all this then. It was working in my life, but I didn't know the neuroscience behind it. But basically, there's something very powerful about focusing your mind on a particular issue, writing it down and reviewing it. And the universe begins to conspire to make these things happen. A lot of it has to do with the reticular activating system, which is a subconscious part of our brain that is a powerful, powerful problem solver. It's always trying to solve the problems that we give it. For example, if you've ever had the situation where you're trying to remember the name of a song and you can't remember it and two or three days later it hits you out of nowhere. Well, that's the reticular activating system. It kept searching for that song while consciously you went back to work. If you've ever had a financial problem or work problem or relationship problem, you can't figure out what to do. And then one night, two o'clock in the morning, it hits you like, whoa, that's the reticular activating system. So it's always trying to solve the problems that you give it. The, the problem with it is it's a lousy judge of character. 
right? Left to its own devices, it'll just take you all kind of crazy places, right? It gets distracted by, by, by this subconscious thought from this movie or something this person said. And this is where I, I, I talk about, you got to think about what you think about. You got to control this bad boy because it's a powerful supercomputer. But really my support system, it was books, a fierce level of determination. People are surprised to learn, Jackie, that I've got 103 IQ, and I've had tested three times. I've been to prison three times. And every time you go to prison, they, te- they give you a series of tests. And one of those is an IQ test. And I tested out 103, 104, I think, one time. I was pretty excited that time. And, uh, you know, my success is a product of focus and fierce determination. I don't get distracted easily. I'm relentless when it comes to focusing on accomplishing a goal, whatever that is. And it's like it's a little bit like probably neurotic. Like I, I, like I want to shoot a certain score in golf and I'll get off to a good start, two or three holes, and then I'll blow up a hole and I want to go start from hole one again. Right. And if there's no one in the golf course, I usually will. So it's a little bit, a little bit neurotic and, and, and weird probably, but it's a fierce determination to finish things. And one of the things I've noticed, and I know we're going to get more into some of the tips and things, you know, later on in this discussion, but one of the things I've noticed is that what kills people in business and sales, it's not a lack of ability, a lack of desire, a lack of skill or whatever. It's a lack of focus. People get distracted by, by BS. They get distracted by unimportant things. And I don't, I just stay fiercely focused. I'm a bulldog on execution, just staying with things. And that's such a key part of it. But, you know, I I guess that's a long way to, to answer your question that the support system was books and a fierce level of determination to be the father and the son that I had never been. That's incredible. Thank you for describing that. Um, and I also wanted, while you were discussing your fierce determination and changing the mice, mindset and the neuroscience, I want to talk about how it changes in the reverse. So for example, talking about our audience that would be listening to this podcast now, if you're a technician who just started your own business and you know you started your business, you realize that there's a lot of things you don't know. And now all of a sudden you're telling yourself like, I'm no good. I can't do this. Like, why did I do this? This was a stupid decision. As you keep filtering those type of thoughts into your mind, that is eventually what's going to manifest. And I know that it can sometimes feel like this type of talk, topic can be a little like in the zeitgeist, a little woo-woo, so to speak, but it's true. Like yeah. it's a four agreements, the secret, all of these yeah. other books that just say about like, you are what you manifest yeah. in your mind. And it's so crucial to pay attention to how you speak and talk about yourself and those thoughts that, you know, just pay attention to what you're thinking about, which is exactly what you said. Yeah. And you're a hundred percent correct there. You know, when I first started reading the secret and in the four agreements and all those different types of books and Tony Robbins and, and, you know, Brian Tracy and Tom Hopkins, who's one of my role models and idols and a very dear friend, but a lot of it was talked about and explained in very mystical ways. And that didn't set well with me. And it's not that I'm not a spiritual person because I I consider myself to be an extremely spiritual person, kind of having a human experience, you know, for these 80 years or so on on this planet. I'm a very spiritual person. But when it came to understanding how this stuff works, it wasn't enough for me to just like, okay, it works. I wanted to know why. And so I started studying the basic neuroscience. And that's what this book was about, The Power of Consistency. And it's super, super simple. When you have a thought, because exactly what you just said, if they start having those negative thoughts, they're correct. If they think they're going to fail, they're correct. If they think we're going to win, we're going to win. And the reason for that is because we prove ourselves right. When we have a thought, any thought, it sends a signal across our brain to a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus then secretes a chemical that triggers an emotional, a chemical that triggers the emotion. So if I have a happy, warm, and loving thought, 
my hypothalamus starts producing dopamine and endorphins. I have a happy, loving, warming emotion, right? The emotion is a reflection of the thought. It's not this random thing that happens in a vacuum. If I have an, a, an angry, a fearful thought, my brain starts producing epinephrine and adrenaline, and I have an angry, fearful emotion. So we have to understand our emotions are not random. They are strictly a reflection chemically in our brain, nothing mystical. It's just simply a, a neurological chemical reaction to the brain. Then once I have that emotion, I'm going to take some action. I'm going to do something about that emotion. So if uh, my wife walks in the room or my son walks in the room or my daughter walks in the room and I have a happy, warm, and loving thought like, hey, there's Skylar, right? And my brain starts producing dopamine and I got to take some action. Do I ignore her? No, I go over and do the natural thing. I give her a hug. Hey, baby, how you doing, right? And then what's the result? I perpetuate that relationship. So the acronym is T-E-A-R, thoughts, trigger emotions, triggers actions, triggers results in life, right? Round and round and round it goes. Here's the scary part. The emotions and the actions are always a reflection of the thoughts, chemically, neurologically, in our brain, in our body, right? But the emotions and the actions are always a reflection of the thoughts, even if the thought is wrong or inaccurate. In other words, we can believe something that's not true and produce very real emotions, very real reactions, and very permanent results. And I'll, an example I'll use is, you know, you walk out of the theater one night, you're with your spouse, maybe a couple of kids, you're walking across the parking lot, and a guy comes around the corner, he's running at you. He's screaming at you, he's got a knife in his hand, he's covered in blood, he's running towards you like he intends to do you some harm. Immediately, your brain starts saying, danger, 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 fear, 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 fear. Within a nanosecond, your brain now is producing ep uh, epinephrine and adrenaline, right? Th so now your emotion is a heightened, fearful emotion, right? What actions do you take? Fight or flee, right? What am I going to do? I got to do something very quickly here. This is danger. Well, I can't run because I've got kids with me, so I got to fight. So the guy comes closer to me. I step into him. I swing. I connect. I get him in the jaw, drop him like a sack of potatoes. What's the result? I protected my family. That process happens a million times a day, whether it's food, relationships, money. You have a thought, triggers an emotion, triggers a reaction, triggers a result. Here's the problem. When the police come to the theater parking lot and the guy regains consciousness, you realize that your thought was wrong and inaccurate. Turns out the guy was no threat to you whatsoever. The blood was fake. The knife was fake. It was a teenage kid running across the parking lot to meet some friends for a Halloween party. We assaulted a perfectly innocent teenager. Now, despite the fact that the thought turned out to be wrong, how real were the emotions we felt when it happened? Incredibly how real. How real were the actions we took when we swung on him? How real is his broken jaw? You see, so this happens in life a lot. We produce very real emotions, very real actions, and very permanent results with consequences, even though the thought was false or inaccurate. And that happens more than people realize. You can believe some false things, and we all have them. We call them limiting beliefs. And I could go into how those develop and, all, and, and that whole process too. But bottom line is you got you to gotta think about what you think about because your thoughts are the contents of everything in here. You got to think about it. Let me give you a quick story that illustrates it. I'm talking to a young man a couple of years ago, he owned a plumbing company and he's complaining about the economy, complaining about this, complaining about that. His dad had owned the company for 20 years before him. He never had any money. He was always broke. And finally, at one point in the conversation, the kid says, he's about 25. He goes, yeah, it's like my daddy always said. Plumbers don't drive Cadillacs. And I'm thinking, you know, there's your sign, right? Funny thing is, two weeks later, I'm down in Florida working with one of the most successful plumbing contractors in the country. And I'm down there for two days of training with his team. And after the first day of training, he invited me out to his house to have dinner. His wife wanted to cook me dinner on their new boat. They lived out in the water. And so I go over there after, after the class that day, and I pull up in the driveway. And the, his wife, Melanie, is pulling out of the 
carport, or the, the, the garage. What do you think she's driving? Cadillac. Cadillac Escalade. And I chuckled to myself. I said, dang, I guess some plumbers do drive Cadillacs, don't they? Then we get in the Escalade. We drive around to this marina a couple of miles away to see his boat. His boat turned out to be a 65-foot, $3.5 million yacht. And I said, man, some plumbers drive Cadillacs and yachts, and some don't. But here's the question. Plumbers don't drive Cadillacs. Plumbers drive Cadillacs and yachts. Which man is right? They're both right. They're both they're right. Both, they're both right. They're products of their expectations. Because one thinks one way, one thinks another way, and that triggers a series of chain events that are going to produce predictable results. It's why your mother always said, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, pretty simple stuff, really. Uh, I was smiling and nodding throughout your entire explanation there because I studied neuropsychology in oh. uh, college and I love it. I'm a total brain science nerd. But, uh, and I think also your story is one to completely illustrate that fact. I mean, it, you say it time and time again in your books, on your website. It's like, think about where I was and think about where I am now. And that's completely the product of your change in thought, your meditation, your transformation process, and what you did those last couple of years you were in prison. So I want to talk about how you got into the trades once mm. you got out and once this mindset was shifted. First off, what was it like exiting that sentence and becoming a free man for, for the third time mm. now with a completely different outlook on life? What right. did the world look like to you? It looked like one big giant opportunity. I was so excited. I was 39 years old living in a homeless shelter and I didn't care. I was so excited. I had the one thing that mattered and that was the right mindset. And I didn't know exactly how things were going to pan out, but I knew they were going to be really, really good. And so I get to the shelter, uh, halfway house, and you got to start looking for a job. And I was so confident, was so excited. I would go out there, I'd hop the city bus, and I would just hop off someplace, and I would go business to business to business. I didn't care if they had help wanted signs or not. I would just go in and talk to them. And I had a very simple little spiel. I would say, how do you do? My name's Weldon Long. I'm looking for a job, an opportunity. I'll never lie, cheat, or steal. And I'll sell more of whatever you're selling than anyone's ever sold here. And people would say, wow, we, we need some great attitudes like that around here. And then I'd say, well, now there's a little more to the story. <laughs> so kind of spent 13 years in prison and living up at the shelter on Nevada. And people would say, you know, thanks, but no thanks, and that type of thing. And this went on for months and months and months. And uh, finally in April of 2003, I'd been at this about four months at that point. I got to the, the place in January. I got out, and by April – I walk into this place and the guy's looking for a salesman for some services that they, some financial services they sold. And I go in, I give him my spiel and uh, he says, wow, we need some great attitudes like that around here. I said, well, now there's more to the story. I told him my story and he looks at me, he says, he goes, uh, I think you're a changed man. And I said, you're damn straight. I'm a changed man. <laughs> I've been trying to tell, you know, folks that for four months, I'm not the same dude as that cat on paper, you know? And, so we started talking, he walks out of the room for a while, goes and talks to somebody, comes back and he says, write down when you went to prison, why you went to prison and all that. And um, so I did, and he took it back out and about 15 minutes later, he comes back and you know, I can see the look on his face and he says, Mr. Long. And I said, dude, whatever you say next, don't let it be the word no. I need this job in ways you can't understand. I will clean the floors, I'll wash your car, I'll scrub the toilets, but don't say no to me. I need this job. My whole thing was to get out, get a place to live, get my son. I had to have a job to make that happen. And he says, man, if it was up to me, it'd be, you know, it'd be yes, but there's no way with your record, it's going to happen. And so I got up and I walked out of the building and I was just so dejected about a half a mile walk back to the bus stop. It was, you know, April in Colorado. So it was cold and I get back to the bus stop and finally get back to the shelter. And I'm just sitting there 
on my rack and all the old tapes start playing, right? Who do you think you are? You're 39 years old. You spent your entire adult life in the penitentiary. You know, would you think you come out here and be Joe's suburban dad and the world's going to greet you with open arms? And I started all the negative self-talk and all the old tapes started playing. And then all of a sudden I hear myself ask myself a question that I had asked myself a thousand times before that day. And that simple question was this, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want it? Did you expect a ticker tape parade out here to come out here and do it 39 years old or what you should have been doing at 19? Did you expect it to be easy? Did you expect a garden party? It's going to be hard, right? And that's why you have to stick with it, right? So the next day I got back up, I'm knocking on doors. April turns into May, May turns into June. Last week of June in uh, 2003, I walk into the heating and air conditioning company and I gave the guy my spiel and uh, he gave me a job selling air conditioners. And uh, I went out that first month. The first, I, I trained for about a week on the install side, a couple of sales leads with him. I didn't know much about the industry. And the first week of June, I walk in after the 4th of July holiday, and he handed me a sales lead. He said, there's your shot. And I went out my first month in this business. I sold $149,000 of air conditioners, not knowing the first thing about what I was doing. I made over $14,000 in sales commissions, and I have never looked back. <laughs> I worked there for about eight months. Then I owned my own company, and you got to know the rest of the story, and I've been you know, in the last 12 years speaking, consulting and training in the industry. And it's just, the industry has been extremely generous to me, extremely kind and welcoming. You know, you think about a guy like me, I've worked for most every major manufacturer and distributor and contractor in this country in the last 12 years. And none of those companies could probably hire me to sweep their floors because of my record. But the trust and the reputation that I've built over these years, these same companies are willing to entrust their employees, their dealers, uh, their distributors, whatever the case may be, because they believe in the message and they believe in the messenger. So that's, that's, people ask me how I got in the HVAC industry. And I say, Hey man, the HVAC industry chose me. I didn't choose it. I was, it just, that was the door that opened. I was going through it. Yeah. I, uh, while you were telling that story, I just realized about, I mean, it is exactly what you said. Like, what did you expect a parade? And it, it, and all those old tapes playing. I mean, I can only imagine, like, that's what people go through, you know, like, as you're trying to change your mindset, and as you're trying to adjust your thoughts, you're always going to face adversity. And you're always going to find examples to start looping those old tapes again. Mm -hmm. And it's just so important to keep your focus and commit to the change that you're trying to make internally within your mind. Absolutely. These, these thoughts, you know, they run down these neural pathways. And I tell people that there's like an interstate system and the cars are the thoughts, right? And they're just running down this highway. And isn't it strange how like almost every day we have like the same habitual thoughts. Like we're mad at the same people today we've been mad at for five years, the ex-wife, the ex-boss. We think this about that. We think that about this. And none of it changes. And it's the same freaking runaway train every single day. And people never stop to say, well, wait a second. Are these habitual thoughts getting me where I want to go? Right. And because they're fairly easy to change through a process of visualization and writing things down. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not a horrible, you know, the horribly difficult thing to change. You just have to make the decision that, that you want to. Who quotes this? It's the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting yeah. different results. Yep. I got another one of my favorites and that's finding something that works and stop using it <laughs> because I see that happening a lot too. People find something find, that works and stop using it. I've never heard yeah, that before. Yeah. I'll, I'll have people that read one of my books like, man, I saw you three years ago and I wrote down my prosperity plan. I meditated on man. This crazy things start happening. And somewhere along the way, I, I stopped doing it. <laughs> like that's the, that's the insanity. Find something that works and stop using it. <laughs> 
Totally. I want actually, I want to get in. So the one thing also you were saying about your story, and we're totally going to move on to tips soon because time with talking to you is just flying by. But I love the spiel that, not the spiel, but the sales pitch you created for yourself as you went door to door, um, go looking for different opportunities. Did you at that point kind of realize or start to realize that sales may be an opportunity for you in just the way you learned how to present yourself? Like I'm here to work, I'll do whatever you want, but wait, there's more. Like I just, that's such a wonderful storytelling gift. And I was just curious if you knew you kind of had that in you already. I, I started suspecting that I did. The funny thing is though, is that I'd always heard when I was younger that I'd be a great salesman because I had this, this, this personality and I could, you know, I was a great talker. And what I'd learned is that great salespeople are great listeners, right? Comedians are great talkers. Unpaid consultants are great talkers. Brilliant conversationalists are great talkers. Salespeople are great listeners. And I had to learn that a little bit because I had this belief when I was in prison, my dad died. I started making these changes. Obviously I started thinking about, okay, what am I going to do to make a living? And I had agreed when I pled guilty in my federal charges to a million dollar restitution order. And when I signed that guilty plea in that restitution order in 1996, it was before these changes happened. And it's like, I don't care how much restitution is. I'm never going to have to pay it. Who's who pays restitution, right? Just tell them to go to hell. Right. Well, by the time I got out or a few years before I got out, I'm like, wow, that's a responsibility. That's an obligation I have. I have to pay this. And I've got to figure out how I'm going to make a living and raise my son and get my son and pay restitution, build a life and blah, blah, blah. And so it occurred to me, I wasn't going to get a job at IBM or, you know, something like that. I was probably going to have to go to work for a small mom and pop that occurred to me. And when I work with guys in the joint now, I tell them to look for those opportunities, smaller companies where maybe the policies aren't as strict about a felony record. And then I I just, I didn't know anything. I said, "I, I can learn to sell. And ironically, I started reading books on sales as I was doing the personal development and, you know, the neuroscience stuff, I started studying sales and almost everything I learned about sales. I learned from uh, Tom Hopkins. He wrote a book 40 years ago called how to master the art of selling. He's written 15 books since then. And he's a freaking genius. And most everything I know about sales, I learned from Tom. Tom about 10 years ago became a very good friend of mine. He actually wrote the forward to my second book, The Power of Consistency. And we toured together for about five years, doing three or four events a year together. But when I, but long before I knew him, I'm in a cell reading his books. And so I, I yeah, so I came out thinking, okay, I got to find a job selling something in a small company. And, and then I had to, to really learn to go from the theoretical in the books to what actually happened in, 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 in the real world, the kitchen table of sales. And then I developed this process, consistency selling, which was the sales process I developed for myself, which was really a combination of a lot of stuff I learned from Tom Hopkins, a lot of stuff from a guy named Robert Cialdini, who is big into human behavior and applying psychology to business and different things and, and ended up kind of with this, this formula of my own. And, and so, yeah, I, I, I figured it had to be sales and I, and I was good at it, turned out to be really good at it. Uh, yeah. No crap. You're a New York Times bestselling author. <laughs> right. um, awesome. Be careful what you wish for, by the way. <laughs> that was one of my dreams. And uh, I've been on the road 200,000 miles a year since then. So, I mean, I bet you got great points from your airline. But, I I, okay, so I want to kind of now transition to you starting your business and getting into this place where now you're consulting, you're coaching other men and women in the trades and other service yeah. industries to yeah. be great at selling. One quote that you mention on your website is uh, the 
the quote, the sole meaning of life is to serve. So to kick off this part, I want to ask you, what does that mean to you? That was a quote that I read uh, years ago from Leo Tolstoy, that the true meaning of life, service is the true meaning of life. And obviously we're in the service industry, so it's not, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out, okay, I got to be really good at serving others. But I think that, that people miss a little bit of the significance of serving others. They think about it in terms of their customers. And I read a fabulous book one time called The Customer Comes Second, written guy by name, uh, I can't remember his first name, his last name was Sewell. He owns a series of car dealerships down in Texas, big car guy. And it talks about taking care and serving our employees, right? True servant leadership. Uh, it's funny, I, had a, I own an HVAC company here in Colorado that I opened a year ago because I'm a glutton for punishment and we're a service titan client. And, uh, but I wanted to invest in something uh, with my family, my brother-in-law and his family. And uh, I was thinking about getting a franchise for them or something and ended up just getting back in the HVAC industry. And it's, it's going great. It's going fantastic. And uh, I was having a meeting with uh, the team over there this morning very early. And we were talking about customer service and I reminded them, but the number one person I serve are the men and women of this building. Because if I take care of them, they're going to go out there and happily take care of my customers. If we treat our people with disrespect, we don't compensate them properly, the culture is not great or whatever it is, how do we expect them to go out and give this amazing experience to our customers, right? So the service part of it is our customers, but it's really our people. And, and I think it's part of the success that I've had because I do that servant leadership. I mean, you got to be willing to do what you ask other people to do. And it's one of the things that anybody that's ever worked for me will tell you that I'll never ask them to work on a Saturday if I won't work on a Saturday, you know, whatever the situation is, I'm going to be right there in the front lines with them. Gotcha. I love that. So um, you started this HVAC company that you're currently using Service Titan on about a year ago with your family. So I just want to make sure I have the timeline right. So you started uh, selling air conditioners for that uh, HVAC company, the first job that you got. And then uh, how did your trade career progress? Did you from there just become top salesperson and then uh, write all these books and then decide to open up the HVAC shop recently? I just want to make sure I have time. Yeah. So I got my, I got my first job in 2003 and I, I, worked, I did that for about eight, eight or nine months. And in 2004, I opened my first company. I grew that to $20 million and I sold it in 2010. And then I uh, started writing my first book in 2008. So about the time my first book came out in 09, I sold the company. I was traveling a lot. I was already speaking full-time professionally by 2008, 2009. And so I had a chance to sell the company. I wasn't looking to sell it, but a real estate guy wanted it to move in to his building as the anchor tenant. So I sold the company and was out of the contracting industry for 10 years and just, you know, work with other clients and helping them build their companies and train their salespeople, service techs, service techs, et cetera. And then my brother-in-law and I had been talking about this thing. And then last, uh, last spring, my old operations manager happened to be out of my house doing some, some work for me. And I asked him, he was still at the same place where I sold 10 years earlier. He was still there, but he wasn't very happy. And I said, well, I'm thinking about getting back in the game and I need a good, strong operations guy because I'm not an operations guy. I don't know anything about the technology. My brother-in-law didn't either. And uh, I offered him a handsome percentage of the company. He came over. And so he is now one of the owners as well. And we launched that in May of last year. So we're coming up on our first year here in a couple of months. It's going great. We're going to hit probably two and a half million our first year and kind of starting to break even. We lost a lot of money out of the, out of the gate, which was, but we did it. It's so funny because the first time I opened a company, it was like hand to mouth. 
Like I'm doing installations, collecting from the homeowner and going back to the supplier to pay for it, you know, and trying to get the next system. And this time did it. I'm in a much different financial situation, shall we say, and got eight beautiful vehicles and a beautiful building and, and just did it first class from the very, very first day. And it's been a lot of fun. It's very expensive to do it that way. Uh, we put several hundred thousand dollars into this thing, but uh, it's, it represents, you know, who we want to be and uh, everything is first class. But that, that spills over to our people. You know, they know what we expect, and that's the environment we provide for them. So going back to uh, – this is fascinating because you really have two different points of view as to how to start a service business. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about how in that first business, which, by the way, five years getting to $20 million, that is, yeah. not, a, that is not a small accomplishment. That is incredible. Thank you. We work um, yeah. So I want to talk about how you transitioned from that hand to mouth thing to getting to $20 million. Like what were some things that you learned along the way? What were some of your biggest takeaways that you would impart, would like to impart to other contractors yeah. who may be in that space right now? I, I, I think that there's two things that really jump out at me that are often overlooked for guys doing this. Number one is financial accountability, right? Uh, and managing your company with a service Titan or uh, QuickBooks or whatever you have at the time. The key thing in business, you got to have relevant, timely, and accurate information about your leads, about your money, about everything. When we first started, we started with a, with a notepad and sticky notes, right? Trying to keep up with stuff. And the very first thing that, that we did when I started this new company is I told my brother-in-law, call Service Titan and start onboarding, learn it, learn it, get it on board. Because I know what it's like to start a company without measuring anything without knowing what's going on with anything. So that's, that's one thing that is super important to get to that place as fast as you can. Understand the critical life or death value of accurate information. What gets measured gets done. Measuring you know, your call conversion, measuring your revenue per lead, measuring your financial stuff, obviously. All these different things, super, super important. The other thing that I would say is equally important, and it's kind of a mindset issue, that what made the difference for me is that I realized from day one, because I didn't come from the contracting industry, from day one, I was never a heating and air conditioning company. I was a sales and marketing company who sold and installed heating and air conditioning systems. We were a sales and marketing company first. One of the biggest challenges that I see going to work with companies, we you know, exalt the service technicians, the quality of our installs, you know, the, it's all about our great quality, but sales for some reason in our industry is looked down upon. It's funny, I, I tell people, if you had the busiest day of the summer, you had 100 service calls, you would never grab your accountant and say, hey, can you go run some service calls for me today? Because we understand a service technician has to be trained, experienced, skilled, all those different things, right? But when it comes to sales, we'll grab somebody with a pulse and a heartbeat and say, hey, you're the sales guy, right? No skills, no training, no aptitude for it. And then and we just don't, so, so we have to elevate the sales function and the lead management function. I'm not saying it's more important than service techs and, 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 and quality installations, but man, it's equally as important. If you look at any business, there's four key components. There's finance and accounting, there's operations, there's human resources, and there's sales and marketing. It's a core component of any business, and we have to elevate that. And if people can really focus on lead generation and lead management, the sales process, and measuring and monitoring the activity of their business, they're going to be light years ahead of the competition. You got to get to those places as fast as you can. 
I, I I love that. And this is definitely what the the key issue in both of your books is, both the power of consistency and consistency selling. And I want to talk about um, now selling in the service industry. So there's a lot of different, me- different methodologies out there. There's everything from you should give three options to six options. So I've heard even like nine or 12 options, uh, flat rate versus time and materials. What is the general rule of thumb that you give to most service industries when it comes to that kind of stuff, when they're asking you like, how should I be selling? Yeah. So, and, and you make a very good point there. There's so many different competing ideas and thoughts. I'll preface my, my comments with this. Any sales process, any sales system, any service tech system you use will work if you execute consistently. I haven't found one yet that won't work if it's used properly. The problem is typically user error, right? They're not using the system, right? Having said that, I'm a big proponent that the confused mind says no. You got to keep things simple. So one of the things I've noticed about some sales processes out there is they're very, very complex. What I developed and the reason I think I've had so much success the last 12 years in teaching sales in the industry is that when I first started going to sales training types events, they give you lots of good sales advice. When they say this, you say this, you know, do this, do that. But I didn't really have the materials. They would say, go home and put a pitch book together. What the hell does that mean? So what I did 12 years ago is I put together a kind of a generic pitch book that any company could use. They had the ability to take the digital files and customize it if they wanted, but they had off, they could walk out of my sales training with a nine page laminated booklet to go through with the key bullet points scripted out with the questions they should ask scripted out right there in the presentation. I don't care if the homeowner sees it, right? They're not paying attention to what I'm looking at. And I would teach them how to go. It's got to be simple and consistency selling. I break the sales function down into four key things. R I S E build a relationship and investigate the problems, sell your company and solve the problems and then bring the call to a conclusion. Ask for the freaking order right? You got to keep it super, super simple. So as far as the number of options presented, there is a lot of research behind offering multiple options. I prefer three or four, four probably ideal. And the reason for that is something called compromise choices. A lot of research in uh, consumer behavioral the field of compromised choices. There's a very famous story that uh, William Sonoma, the kitchenware company, had this really great bread baking oven in their stores. It was a great value, great price. They thought they were going to sell, you know, like hotcakes. Well, they couldn't give them away. And so what they did was they said, well, maybe our customers expect a higher end, you know, oven, bread baker. So they got this higher end in there and they started changing out the inventory. Well, some of the stores inadvertently left both on the shelf. And what do you think happened to the less expensive one once they had a more expensive one next to it? They started selling like hotcakes. Compromise choices. If we give people only one choice, then the compromise choice is nothing. It's all or nothing. And you have to make sure that you're giving them a range and, and you want the top range to be something not necessarily they're going to buy, but it puts everything else in perspective. I mean, it's common sense. If I'm trying to sell you $15,000 of a new HVAC system, I want you comparing that 15 grand to 30 grand, not the five grand. So I got to present the 30 grand to you first, not so much because you're going to buy it. Sometimes people do, but more importantly, to put everything else in perspective. It's one of the most important things in sales. If I got just a minute, I'll share with you a real life story. About six years ago, I got a call from a manufacturer. It was not in our industry, a different industry. I do a lot of speaking and training in other industries. And they had 2000 dealerships that they wanted to do some sales training for. And they wanted me to develop the sales training program. And they told me that they had a budget of a half a million dollars. Well, the problem was they had already talked to six or seven other companies who actually had a chance to come in and present to them live. And they had heard about me right at the end of their process. And they wanted me to email a bid, email a proposal on Monday. And this was Friday. 
Well, the kiss of death is emailing anything, right? Number one rule in sales, I want my customer to accept me or reject me face-to-face or at least on the phone. Accept me or reject me, either way is fine. I tell people yes is best, but no is a perfectly acceptable answer, Mr. Homeowner. Just let me know if I'm a good fit, right? Because people want to say no to you by ignoring your phone calls, emails, et cetera. So I submit a proposal on Monday to this company, and my objective was to, number one, put the budget in perspective, and number two, to get me a face-to-face. So I submitted a proposal for $10 million, which was 20 times their budget. And it was ridiculous. I knew they would never buy it. It included like 50 live events, a, a weekly television show just for their dealerships, all kind of crazy stuff, right? So money, the guy calls me, gets it. He goes, Dude, we told you the budget's a half a million dollars. I said, well, you know, I mean, if you want to do this right, you've got 2,000 dealerships and it's going to cost about five grand a year for each dealership, 5,000 times 2,000, that's $10 million a year. And he goes, you're going to have to come down here and explain this, which is exactly what I wanted. So I hopped on a plane and I go down there, took three or four trips. The, the, the final decision makers were Japanese folks. So I had to go down a third or fourth trip to an interpreter and do the final presentation. And I got the deal. I closed the deal for $2 million, which was four times, of course, their budget of a half a million. Here's the crazy part. We go to dinner that night and I'm sitting next to the, the guy that I very first talked to on the very first conversations. And he leans over to me. He goes, uh, he goes, Weldon, he goes, uh, you know what we were all thinking when we got you down to $2 million? In his mind, they got me down to $2 million from $10 million. He didn't even consider I got him up from half a million to $2 million. And I laughed and I said, no, John, tell me, what were you guys thinking when you got me down to $2 million? He said, man, we were all thinking, whew, at least it wasn't $10 million. Right? You got to put price in perspective for your customers. When you show your homeowner a $15,000 system, they got to be saying, whew, at least it's not the $30,000 one, right? You cannot have them comparing that to $5,000. So you got to have compromised choices. You got to have multiple options, if for no other reason than to present a big number. It's it kind of like this picture the sales call as an incline, like a mountain. And the price is this giant boulder. And you can st- start the boulder at the bottom of the mountain at $5,000 and use brute force and strength and overcome the power of gravity to push it to 15,000. Or you can bring it in on a helicopter and put it at the top of the mountain and use leverage and gravity to lower it down to 15,000, which is easier, of course, bringing it down. So you, to do that, you got you to gotta show multiple options. So any sales training system, I believe, I've never seen a sales training system that wouldn't work. And I've seen almost probably everyone out there. Joe Grisara is great, right? Tech Daddy Greer is great. Drew Cameron is the guy that hired me and trained me how to sell in the HVAC industry. They're all great, great guys, right? It's about using a system on a consistent basis and use the teaching that you get, and it's going to work. It's usually, you know, human error when it doesn't work. I love that. And I thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, I'm, I've been learning so much about sales since interviewing business owners of service yeah. shops. And I love it. I think it's fascinating. I want to talk about, because you kept saying human error. So obviously, two titles of your book have consistency in them. So talk to me about when random results of sales, when do they indicate a sales process that needs to be tweaked? And when do they indicate human error? That is a fantastic question. So I think that, you know, as I often say, you know, random sales results come from random sales activities. If there is a problem in the results, it'll be one of two issues. It will be either A, a low average ticket, or B, a low conversion rate, low close rate, or I guess C could be both of them. So here's the thing. 
when you look at the, the global sales process, as I describe RISC, relationship, investigate, sell, and conclude. And by the way, I say conclude the call, not close, because you can't close 100% of your calls, but you can conclude every sales call, right? And that's my objective. My objective on every sales call is to get a yes or a no, because no's aren't going to kill you in sales. It's the I don't know's call me back that will destroy you, right? So if I got a salesperson and they have a very high close rate, and a very low average ticket, then typically I find it's a problem with their lack of investigation. They're not digging enough to find additional problems, right? People call us with one problem and they have blinders on. They're calling us with a furnace problem, an air conditioner problem, whatever it is. Our job is to take those blinders off and through a comprehensive investigation process, investigate all the other problems that the homeowner has that they either A, don't know, or B, don't want to acknowledge because problems cost money to be fixed. People will put blinders on intentionally sometimes, other times unintentionally. So if I got a low average ticket, I'm looking at the guy, he's probably, or the gal, he's not developing enough of a relationship and broadening the scope of the problem. If it's a conversion, if it's a high average ticket and a very low conversion rate, then that person is finding lots of problems and recommending lots of solutions but they're just not handling objections well. They're letting people walk out. You know, I call it the sales hallway. And you walk down the hallway and there's all these side doors. You got to close those side doors because if you don't, people will walk out of them. And the side doors are, you're too expensive. I got to need three bids. I want to think about it. People escape out of the hallway. We got to learn. That's what this book, Consistency Selling, is all about, about proactively having those conversations with your homeowners and closing those doors so you got a better chance of getting a yes or no at the end. doesn't mean it's going to be yes all the time, but what I want is a yes or a no. So if it's a close rate thing, they're just not dealing with objections well, or they're not building good relationships, right? Uh, relationships, as we know, are the core of sales. People often say, you know, people buy from people they like. I tell people, don't forget, people also buy from people who like them. It's not enough for your customer to like you. They need to know you like them right? It's very important. It's often overlooked with respect to relationships. And there's very simple ways, by the way, to get people to know you like them. The easiest way is to ask their opinion or their advice, because who do you, who do you ask advice from? People you like and respect. So if I say, hey, Mr. Jones, I noticed you had a boat out there. I've never had a boat, but if I was going to buy a boat, what would be the first thing I should do? You know, what should I learn, right? And, and let start tell, teaching you about a boat. Who, now he knows you like him, right? There's also the way you could just tell him like, hey, you're really a cool guy, if you mean it, if it's sincere, uh, if it's if it's not sincere, people will see through it. But those things, relationship and investigation go to uh, arrest. Uh, excuse me, relationship and objections go to closing rate. Investigation, skill, problem solving goes to average ticket. So I kind of look at what the problem is on the sales results, which, by the way, you have to measure to know, right? <laughs> uh, and and then I will attack that part of the presentation if uh, depending on what the nature of the problem is. That's fascinating. And I think that's a really great way that people who are listening now can think about it. It's like, is it your average ticket rate or is it your conversion rate? And then discovering what's the core issue and then zooming out from there. But talking about the the actual sales process, you actually had a blog post that was uh, why sales training doesn't work. So I was just curious in your opinion, what makes, and a lot of uh, owners, by the way, have sales training. They're like, I, we do sales state, we do training with our technicians several times a week. And it's usually a combination of technical training combined with sales training. Yes. So I'm curious for, in your opinion, what is an early, what's a marker of a good sales training program versus a bad sales training program? I think that the, the biggest tell is the simplicity of it. If it's, oh, you show me an overcomplicated sales system and I'll show you a sales professional who's not using it. 
And that's not just in our business, by the way, I, I did a big project a few years ago for FedEx and they have a small business group and the numbers were just really, really bad. And I looked at their sales process and it was hopelessly complicated. So we simplified it and started teaching it in a very simplified fashion. And guess what? It worked. I think that's the biggest challenge. And by the way, it's the sales training industry's fault that happens. People operate, people who are in the business on my side of it, they operate sometimes under the misconception that I got to, I got to show them there's tons of value. So I need to book this thick. We go through over three days. Right. And I just tell people measure the results. I'm not going to give you a bunch of stuff you don't need. All right. I'm going to give you the fundamentals of sales and execute. I've had people ask me that have come back to my training. Is it the same stuff I saw two years ago? Yes. Because the stuff that worked two years ago is the stuff that worked 2000 years ago when we were trading camels at the pyramids and it's going to work 2000 years from now, build a relationship, investigate the problem, solve the problem and ask for the damn order. So I don't need to put bells and whistles on it to make it look fancier so I can charge more for it. You know, the reality is simplicity is the hallmark of really anything that works. I mean, it, it's funny. We were talking about the power of consistency earlier, and I, I love acronyms. I, I use the FEAR process, F-E-A-R, focus, emotional commitment, action, responsibility. That's the process for kind of reprogramming the habitual thoughts. When that book came out, it hit number five on New York Times, number two on Wall Street Journal, and I get a call from a guy named Ed Nottingham. He's a, a clinical psychologist, a neuroscientist guy, written a couple of books of his own. He works for FedEx. That's how FedEx became a client. And he calls me up and he says, Mr. Long, I got to tell you, this book is the simplest explanation of decision-making and results and the principles that are the underpinnings of rational emotive behavior therapy I've ever read in my life. And I'm like, there's a name for this shit. I mean, it's common sense, right? Don't overcomplicate it. Keep it simple. There's no better advice in the world for everything. Simplify, simplify. Listen, Stephen Jobs, before he passed away, he was asked, you know, to what do you attribute the success of Apple computers? And he said, focus and simplicity focus and simplicity. If it's good enough for Steve Jobs, good enough for me. Think about Apple computers, right? By all measures, one of the greatest companies in the history of commerce. How many products do they have? Three or four? They got a phone, they got a, a, a Mac, and they got an iPad, right? Probably a couple of things. I mean, they keep it simple. Focus and simplicity. Focus and simplicity. What do they focus on? User experience. That's why Apple's Apple. They focus on the user experience. And of course, they keep it super simple. I mean, Max, I, they're just easy to use. I, I absolutely love that. I think that's a fa fantastic answer. And I love that you brought up your acronym, FEAR, Focus, Emotional Action, Emotional Connection, Action, and Responsibility, because that really kept my attention when I was perusing through the power of consistency. Awesome. What would you say, we're nearing towards the end of the hour, so I, I want to start wrapping it up. And by the way, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too. Good. I'm glad. What would you say to, because right, because right, you've been at every stage of this journey in terms of a, a service owner, also as a consultant, you visited, you know, hundreds of service shops and helped them refine their process. And I have a feeling that a lot of your refinement comes from mindset. So what are some tips that people listening right now can take to start changing their mindset, mindset and start focusing on what matters? Yeah, I think it's, it, it, again, it's really simple. Number one, what do you really want? Have we thought about what do I really want? And there's three primary areas of life that I, that I identify. Your money, your relationships, and your health. Your money is your business, your financial security for you and your family, that type of thing, your profession. Your relationships can be your marriage, kids, neighbors, community, anybody you interact with. And your health can be your mental, spiritual, or physical health. Those, in my estimation, and I tell people all the time, there's very few things good about getting old. 
One of them is, and I'm coming up, I'm, you know, up on close to 60 years old now, it's hard to believe, but one of the things you get is wisdom and some maturity, right? The bottom line is, is that you got to get clear on what you want in those three areas. And in my years, I'm walking this planet. If it ain't got to do with my business, which is my money, my profession, my relationships, which is my spouse, my kids, my neighbors, my community, or my mental or physical or spiritual health, it really doesn't matter. I'm not saying I'd love to play golf, right? I'm just saying it's not a priority, right? So you got to figure out, be specific. What exactly do you want? I'm going to share a story with you that will blow your mind. So I love cars. I got nice cars and Ferraris and all that kind of fun stuff. And a couple of years ago, Mercedes-Benz came out with a special edition of the G-Wagon. It's their SUV, SUV. And they came out with the G-Wagon 4x4 squared. And it's a foot wider than a regular G-Wagon, a foot taller. It's this gigantic tank of a car. They only made 300 of them in 2018. And I decided I wanted one. Well, I went to look at them, and I couldn't really get one. I couldn't get on the list to get one, or it's a long list. And they were about 300 grand. So I'm like, okay, bucket list deal, right? One of these days. So I'm looking online one day, and I see the boxer, Floyd Mayweather, has his G-Wagon. And he's got this massive car collection in Las Vegas. And he's showing this G-Wagon, this Bugatti that he had. And it was this black matte, flat, not, not shiny black, but flat black matte. It was the full G-Wagon. I mean, it was, whoa, such a beautiful. So I could cut a picture of it. I put it on my dream board. Think about having a dream board, right? And I put it up there. Two years goes by. And I got a broker I work with out in San Diego. And I told him for a year, keep an eye out for one of these 2018s if you can get me a deal on one. So he calls me up a couple of months ago. And he says to me, he goes, hey, I got a G-Wagon. 10,000 miles on it. It's perfect. It gives me the number. I like the price. And I'm like, I'll take it. It's flat black, right? Not shiny black. Nope, it's flat black. Exactly what I wanted. So I go out to San Diego. They're going to ship it to me. They can't find a truck wide enough to send it. I said, I'll drive out and get it, which I've done before. It's a beautiful drive back through Vegas and over the Utah desert in Colorado. So I drive out to get it. I walk in the showroom. They got it sitting there and got it ready for me to go and everything. I'm talking to the salesman. He goes, uh, he goes, yeah, man, this thing is it's mint condition. It came from a collector. He goes, actually, collector is a very famous athlete. I said, wait a second. Don't tell me it's Floyd Mayweather. He said, how did you know? I said, I have this exact car on my dream board. And sure Holy enough, two, yeah, two weeks later, I get the title. Floyd Mayweather was transferred the title to me. And I'm just telling you, get focused on what you want. Dr. Covey used to call it, call it the conscious and unconscious serendipity of the universe. Something about getting focused on things you want. The reticular activating system, which we don't have time to get into, will start noticing the things you need to make it happen. I'll give you another quick story. June 10th, 1996, my father dies. I pick up a copy of The Seven Habits. Years later, Dr. Covey becomes a friend and a mentor. He endorsed my first two books. He endorsed my first book on June 10th of 2009, 13 years to the day that my father died and I picked up The Seven Habits. All kind of crazy stuff like that has happened in my life. The more I get intentional and focused on what I want. So when it comes to mindset, get focused. What do you want your business to be? Like be specific, how much revenue? How much profitability? Be specific. You got to be specific. And then you got to write it down. Write it down and review it every single day for 10 or 15 minutes. I call it the quiet time ritual. Get your cup of coffee, get your prosperity plan, review it for 10 or 15 minutes a day. Again, we don't have the neurology, but it changes the neural connector. It changes the pathways up here. Those become your habitual thoughts. The reticular activating system starts looking for things to make it happen. Before you know it, like every other problem your subconscious solves, you wake up and it's there. You got to get focused 
write down what you want, review it every single day. The mindset is king. It's the key to success. I absolutely love that. I mean, honestly, it's not even 9 a.m. and I am inspired. So thank you for kicking off my week with a bang, Weldon, truly. I have one final question for you. If you could, what would you say to your dad today? Mm. If I could, I would say to my dad that you don't have to be ashamed of me anymore. That uh, I kept that promise to my dad that I would be a man he could have been proud of. My brothers tell me all the time. They just tell me all the time, like, man, if dad would just be blown away if he could see this. And I also became the father my son deserved. I got out and he was 10 years old. I got custody of him and I raised him. He's 27 years old now. He finished college last year. I jokingly tell people it took him seven years to get through a four-year program. But if you send your kid to University of Colorado with legal marijuana, you better be patient. Because, <laughs> uh, but I would just tell my dad, like, hey, you don't have to be embarrassed and ashamed anymore. And yeah, that would, that would be the thing. I, I think he would be very proud of you. If that's worth anything. I know we just met, but I think so. Is there anything that you want to plug? We mentioned your books, uh, The Upside of Fear, The Power of Consistency, Consistency Selling. You have a wonderful website, weldonlong.com. Is there anything else that people should be on the lookout for for you? Yeah, in fact, on the weldonlong.com, there's a banner across the top for a new app that we just launched called rehashleads.com. And it's an app that basically uh, automates the follow-up process on a lost lead. So you you run 10 leads, you close four of them, you lose six. And what happens in most cases, we lose track of those six. What this does is allows you to drop that customer into an app and it's pre pre-made shot videos. I produced all the videos, emails, and it starts a, a conversation going with that homeowner that keeps you in touch with them during that critical two week period when they're making that final decision. So uh, rehashleads.com or just go to the web, my Weldon Long website. You'll see the, the, the banner for it up there. I appreciate you asking about that. No problem. Well, Walden, this was a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for being on the Toolbox for the Trades. Jackie, it's my pleasure. A lot of fun. The grit and know-how required to tackle your community's toughest jobs hasn't changed, but the way companies run their business has. Service Titan is the only field service software that was born in the trades, built for the trades. If you're interested in seeing what Service Titan can do for your business, request a demo at servicetitan.com slash trades, and we'll send you a new Milwaukee tool set, plus a free iPad when you sign up. That's servicetitan.com slash trades. You've been listening to Toolbox for the Trades, presented by Service Titan, the leading home and commercial field service software. Please subscribe to Toolbox for the Trades wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out servicetitan.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening.